John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served Lazarus, or but served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have uh, uh, with you always, but me you do not have always. Let's pray. Lord, this afternoon again, we just thank you for the Word of God, and we pray that as we spend time in it, that your Spirit would help us to see the things that we need to see, not only collectively, but individually, specifically. And Lord, I ask that our hearts would be nourished and encouraged, edified and challenged to move forward in our relationship with you. Thank you so much this morning for reminding us of how we are loved by you. And I pray that you would just continue speaking that theme into our life today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now this afternoon, I'd like to just focus in on just one verse. That's chapter 12, verse 3. Um, it's, I think it's a, it's a scripture that we're all familiar with. But there John tells us that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Now when I read this, I see that the subject of John chapter 12 verse 3 is love for Jesus expressed in worship. I think we all see that when we see what Mary did. And we all remember that worship, if there's a good working definition for worship, worship is our response to who God is and to all that he does. We were reminded of that this morning, right? When Pastor Ken, he was talking about the love of God and how Christianity is simply responding to God, responding to his love for us, responding to that good work of grace that he does in every one of our lives. And so when we gather to worship and when we live life worshiping God, this is our expression of love and adoration to him. Now, as we spend time learning about worship from this scene here in John chapter 12, verse 3, there's a couple of things I'd like to do. The first thing is I, I'd like to point you to five observations from this verse, things that are there that I just want to point out for you to see, and then the follow-up is going to be the application. And so that's going to be the message this afternoon. So first, I want you to see five observations from verse 3. And number one is I want you to see the person who's worshiping. Here we're introduced to a woman called Mary. 
Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you know that Mary was a common name in the New Testament. In fact, we, we know of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We know of Mary Magdalene. Now, here the gospel, in the Gospel of John, wanting to be specific and to avoid confusion, John tells us that this Mary was the Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, what I want you to see about this Mary that is so beautiful is that this Mary, every time she shows up in the Bible, we find her at a very specific place. She's always at the feet of Jesus. This Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, whenever she shows up in the story of Jesus, she's always at his feet. She was there during a friendly visit by Jesus one day. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, we read that Martha had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That's where you'll find Mary. This Mary of Bethany at the feet of Jesus. But not only when times were good, but also when times were difficult, when times were painful. She was there at the funeral of her brother Lazarus. And John chapter 11 verse 32 says that when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. I like to think of that as her really collapsing. She was emotionally drained and she just collapsed at the best place she could at the feet of Jesus saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, we come to John chapter 12, verse 3, and we see this woman called Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And where do we find her again? At the feet of Jesus at this dinner that was prepared in honor for Jesus. Now, the thing I want you to see about this Mary, this Mary of Bethany, is that she expresses the heart of worship. Everything about her, her life is associated with worshiping Jesus. This was her reputation. This is what she was known for. Why do I say this? Well, just ask the Apostle John. In John chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, when he was talking about this Mary of Bethany, listen to how he describes her. In John 11, 1 and 2, John says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Check this out. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John tells us about this moment, but the story doesn't come till the next chapter. But why does John describe Mary this way? Because this was her reputation. If you were talking about Mary of Bethany, you would be describing a woman that was deeply in love with Jesus. In order to avoid confusion between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and this Mary, you would say, hey, remember Mary, which Mary are you talking about? Oh, the one that loves Jesus. The one that's always at his feet. The one that worshipped him there in John chapter 12. That Mary, that's the one I'm talking about. What a great reputation to have. 
What's your reputation? What are you known for? Talk around town was that this Mary was a lover of Jesus. Observation number two. Not only the person who was worshiping, but check out the way she worships. We see there that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. So here we see that Mary takes this stuff called spikenard. Now, spikenard was fragrant perfume. It was an oil. It was an oil extracted from the root of a plant that came all the way from India. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, you see there it's described as ointment made from pure nard. The idea here is that this is the best quality of spike nard there is. And this perfume was so precious, it was so valuable, that we see in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, that it was kept in this alabaster flask. And John tells us concerning this spikenard, this fragrant perfume, that it was very costly. And listen, that's an understatement. We see here in John chapter 12 that this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's equivalent to one year's wage. So think about that. Think about going to work every day starting on January 1st and working every day till December 31st and you take all of your paychecks just to go down to the mall and to the perfume store and buy one bottle of perfume. That was the value of this spikenard. And listen, it was most likely her dowry. Which means the reason why this perfume was precious to her was that this was a gift that was reserved for her future husband. That's a big deal. Observation number three. I want you to see the object of her worship. John tells us that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his hair, or um, wiped his feet. Now, Matthew and Mark they tell the same story. But in their Gospels, Matthew and Mark tells us that Mary anointed the head of Jesus. Now here in John chapter 12, we see that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. Listen, the message is clear. From head to toes, the object of Mary's worship was completely Jesus. Observation number four, see the results of her worship. The results of her worship. John tells us, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So at this moment here, in this one verse, in John chapter 12, verse 3, the presence of Jesus was filled with a pleasant fragrance. John tells us that Mary poured a pound of this perfume out on Jesus. Guys, you know, a little perfume goes a long way. Now, there are some people that don't believe that, and they douse themselves every day with perfume and cologne. And we know that a little bit goes a long way. What would it be like for this woman to dump out 12 ounces, a pound, of this oil out, all out on Jesus, starting with his head and reaching his feet. You can be sure that this much perfume 
would fill up an entire house with its scent, and this smell would be around for a long time. But here's what I think is so beautiful about this this scene. I want you to see how Mary, as she dumped this perfume out on Jesus and began to wipe his feet with her hair, that she took on the same fragrance as Jesus at that moment. This was a sacred transfer. Mary, as a result of spending time loving on Jesus and worshiping Jesus, she walked away smelling like Jesus. I can imagine the scene. After that moment with Jesus, after she dumped out all that perfume and the house is being filled up with that fragrance and then she takes her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. She goes back into the kitchen to help Martha serve and Martha said, Mary, what, what is that? You smell like Jesus. Where have you been? Oh, at the feet of Jesus. And then there's Mary serving the hors d'oeuvres and she's going up to the disciples and the disciples Mary, where have you been? You smell just like Jesus. Oh, I've been at the feet of Jesus. There was that sacred transfer that happened as a result of her worship at the feet of Jesus. And number five, I want you to see the legacy of her worship. In Mark chapter 14, verse 9, In Mark chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I don't know if you've ever thought about that statement, but that's pretty big. Wherever this gospel is preached, the gospel The gospel that God became a man and he came to earth. The gospel that God, as a man, he lived a sinless life and he ministered to people who are in need. And he brought grace and truth to the world. The gospel that tells us God, as a man, he died on the cross and he took our place and he became our sin and God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus and he paid the ransom for our redemption and he completed the work for our salvation. The gospel that this Jesus was buried and three days later rose again from the dead. The gospel that Jesus went back to heaven and he is forever our great mediator and high priest and whoever believes in him will have eternal life and attached to all that is this story that's huge Jesus is saying what this woman has done for me is such a big deal wherever the gospel is being proclaimed this story is going to be attached to it so we can't just overlook this story as just being a meaningless event something big happened here to the point that Jesus would so value it he would say wherever the gospel would be proclaimed people are going to be talking about what this woman did for me wow so here's the applications I want us to see as we look at this story Keeping in mind those five observations about Mary of Bethany at the feet of Jesus, 
application number one. What do we learn practically from this story? That is, worship involves brokenness. Worship involves brokenness. In Mark 14, verse 3, it tells us that Mary broke the flask. Listen, before Mary poured out the oil, before she anointed Jesus, before she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, listen, there was the sound of a shattering. There was the sound of a breaking as that alabaster flask was broken open because this is where it begins. If the alabaster flask didn't break, then John 12 would have moved from verse 2 straight on into verse 9 without verses 3 through 8. And without verses 3 through 8, we would not have the portrait of a worshiper that's given for us here in this story. It is so important that we get this, that brokenness is an essential ingredient for pure worship. You see, The breaking of the flask illustrates our brokenness in the act of worship towards Jesus. The the main focus of the story was not the flask. The flask is just the container. The treasure was the perfume that was contained inside of that flask. And in the same way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 tells us that we are containers, jars of clay. And God has placed his treasure inside of us, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's only through brokenness that that treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the beauty of Christ is released and displayed and it diffuses its sweet fragrance and that's why David King David he said in Psalm 51 verse 17 the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite or a crushed heart these O God you will not despise in other words brokenness is not just part of the worship it is the worship God accepts brokenness as the worship. And it's this worship that God will not despise because brokenness is always the right attitude in pure worship. As we talk about brokenness, we all understand what this means, right? Brokenness is God-centered, not man-centered. The broken person is the one who is more concerned about what God thinks of him than what others do. Brokenness is humble, not proud. Now, sometimes we get confused on the meaning of humility. Sometimes we think that humility is depreciating, you know, just kind of this outward show of depreciation of self-worth. And so generally, we think of humility on the same level as Eeyore in the story of Winnie the Pooh. A donkey that's depressed because he doesn't have a tail that is like physically attached to his behind, but he's got a pin stuck there. And there's a lot of Christians that show up acting like Eeyore. 
all for the sake of wanting people to be convinced, look at how humble I am. But when you're the end conclusion of your definition of humility, then that's not humility. Because real humility will always draw and attract people to Jesus, not you, not self. I think one of the best definitions for humility is a proper estimation of oneself, and it shows up in how we relate to God, especially in worship. In other words, I know who I am. So a humble person will never seek to be anything more or anything less than who he is in Jesus or who she is in Jesus. Everything is real. There's nothing fake about who I am. It's not just going around saying, oh, look at me, poor me, I'm so bad, please, please feel pity for me, please feel how, you know, that, that I'm just some great humble guy. A real humble person will say, you know what, I am a sinner saved by a great Savior. Look at Jesus. That's a humble person. And in order for Mary to anoint Jesus and to wipe his feet with her hair, it involved humility, right? Because as Jesus was there eating at this dinner, the traditional way to eat was that the table was lowered on the ground. They didn't have chairs. Everyone was reclining on pillows. They were floor level, ground level. That meant in order for this Mary to come and do what she did for Jesus, she had to kneel at his feet. She had to prostrate herself, go low to the feet of Jesus. So the question, the practical question that we have to ask ourselves is what is the position of our worship? How do we come to Jesus in our love and in our affection, in our adoration for him? Number two, I want you to see the application that worship is expensive. We see that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. I'll tell you, the word cheap can never be applied to Mary's worship here. Mary's action of worship, it exemplifies extravagant worship. The word extravagant means going beyond usual bounds. It's unrestrained. And we see Mary doing that right now. And Mary, she's expressing the same heart as King David. When King David said in 1 Chronicles 21-24, I will not offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. She also expressed the same heart as that poor widow who came to worship God in the temple when Jesus said in Mark 12, 43 and 44, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. Listen, all she had to live on. She gave everything to God. It was extravagant worship. And this Mary is doing the exact same thing. And I'll tell you, what Mary did for Jesus is opposite to the cheap forms of worship that was described in the book of Malachi. Remember back in Malachi chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, how God rebuked the nation of Israel for their hypocrisy and formalism in worship? As these Jews would go to the temple to worship God and, and they were going to bring their animal sacrifices to the Lord because worship costs something. 
But as they went through the whole process of selecting the animal that they were going to give to God, on their way to church, they see roadkill. They see these animals that, for whatever reason, they were dead on the side of the road, and they thought, an animal's an animal, right? And a sacrifice has to die, right? Well, why should I have to suffer loss and give up some of my inventory when there's already a dead animal on the road? So I'm just going to take my animal back, and I'll just pick up this dead animal, and then he comes with roadkill, and he comes to the temple, and they offer it, and they burn it, and hands are raised, and they're singing, all to thee I surrender, all to thee I give. And they're worshiping God, and God rebukes these people in the book of Malachi, and he said, am I not a great king? Is this how you come to worship the king? And God exposed them of their hypocrisy. As people come to church and they just want to give God their leftovers. Not their best, but their leftovers. And the Lord says, am I not a king? In fact, this was one of the reasons why Jesus was so angry when he cleansed the temple there in Jerusalem. It wasn't just that people were buying and selling animals even though that was a huge crime. Because it was happening in the court of the Gentiles there in the temple area, and the court of the Gentiles was the place where evangelism was supposed to be happening. Because that was the one place in the temple that Gentiles were allowed to come and get to know God, and Jews were supposed to be there waiting for these Gentiles to evangelize them with the good news about a God of grace. But instead, when Gentiles would show up, they saw a whole bunch of commerce. But it wasn't just the problem with the religious leaders selling animals. It was also the problem with com um, these worshipers that were coming, not as people wanting to commune with God, but they were consumers. You see, in the Old Testament, God said, when you come, don't come empty-handed. Come with a sacrifice. Come with an animal to offer to me. But by the time of Jesus, people started thinking, I don't need to do that because we've got a marketplace there. I just need to have my wallet with some cash in it, and I'll just cruise over to the temple. I'll go buy an animal that's already been certified for sacrifice, and I don't have to suffer any kind of loss. I don't have to take any of the animals from my, my inventory, from my stock. I could just go pay my money, pay my dues, get my animal, offer sacrifice, and man, this is the ideal scenario for worship. But God said selecting the animal and carrying the animal and bringing the animal to worship, that was all a part of the worship. But these people became more consumer-driven than worshiping God. And sadly, that's become a lot of churches today. People don't think of coming to bring offerings of praise and thanksgiving to God in church, but they come with a consumer mentality. Hey, as long as I'm paying my dues, right, in the form of tithes and offerings, you just provide the services for me. 
I'll just come and I'll just be entertained. I'll just give from my leftovers. But hey, this is really convenient. I love going to this church because that church, that church actually talks about sacrifice and brokenness and offering up our lives as a living sacrifice and worship and ministering to one another. But that church, that church doesn't demand anything from me. It just entertains me. It provides everything for me. So I'm good. I come with my wallet. I do my tithes, my offerings. Hey, and I sing my songs and I go home. And Jesus saw that and he was incensed. Because when Jesus went to the temple, the Bible tells us that Jesus just didn't see what people gave, but how they gave. And those are hard words to hear, right? For some of us, it's kind of making digesting the lunch that we had a little difficult. Because I get convicted in this. Because I think, how often do I come up to tell people about Jesus and I just give leftovers? And then Jesus reminds me, am I not a great king? And do you present that to a king? But not for Mary of Bethany. For her, her worship was costly. She gave everything that she prized and treasured and owned in this life to Jesus. Because she understood Jesus is worthy of all of that. And so you and me, the cost of our worship is summed up in Romans 12.1. When it says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. When you just say, Jesus, all this and everything that is attached to this, it's yours. It's all yours. Another application I see here is that worship is active. We see that she anointed and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. These are action words. These are verbs. And what we see is that worship should never be described as passive. Instead, it should be active. Our worship of God should never be described as both emotionless and motionless. Now, for 10 years, I served as a missionary in Brazil. And I'll tell you, one of the amazing things about living in Brazil was whenever it was time for the World Cup. The World Cup in Brazil is out Outrageous. And there is nothing that is passionless about Brazilian people, especially when it comes to soccer or football. I can imagine for Canadians with hockey. Now, could you imagine going to a, Braz- uh, uh, um, a, a soccer, like a World Cup match or a hockey game? And whenever there's a goal, everyone in the crowd is cool, goal. One for you, zero for us. There's none of that. 
I'm amazed how people who show up in church that say, well, you know, I'm just not an expressive person. I just don't do that kind of stuff. Raise my hand, sing out, stand. I, I just don't do that. And those same people at a hockey game? There's a bit of a disconnect there. Listen, I'm not talking about emotionalism. In emotionalism, you emote for the conclusion of just more emotion. But God created us as emotional beings. Now, I understand temperaments are different. Temperaments are different. Personalities are different. That's why we can't judge one another by putting on people different standards of, oh, you're a real worshiper because you're like really expressive and, oh, you must not be a real worshiper because you're not so demonstrative. Now, that's wrong. That's emotionalism talking. But when we worship God, we emote. God has wired us as people to express joy and love and emotion in how we connect with him in our adoration of him. And when that happens, it shows up in our actions. We see how Abraham, in worshiping God, he built God an altar. The priests, they offered sacrifices. David sang. Daniel prayed. Peter's mother-in-law served. Paul suffered with a joyful attitude. And here we see Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this oil. So worship can show up in all sorts of different forms. But in every one of these cases, Christ is always the conclusion of it. Even right now. As we're here with our Bibles open and we're listening to this word that's being shared right now, this is our worship. This is our expression of love to Jesus. I mean, because every single one of us, there's a thousand other things that we could be doing right now instead of this. But you're here. And you're pressing through this because I'll tell you what. The after lunch time for a session They usually give that to the person that's either really like spasmatic (laughs) in how he speaks or they give it to the guy that they think, he's really got nothing to say, but we feel obligated to let him speak. (laughs) But you're here. You're here. And it's because you love Jesus. And I want you to know that you being here at this hour listening to this word, it's being received by Jesus as your expression of worship and love right now. God doesn't look over this. He's not thinking, well, that's nice. It's nice that they're they're really into Bible studies. No, Jesus is just basking in this right now saying, I received their love and I, I received their worship of me right now. Check these people out. And the angels are looking in and they're like, wow, these guys, they've stuffed themselves at lunch. And now they're just here just receiving the word of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking all that in as worship. You're expressing something. You're communicating that Jesus is this big to me, that I want to live life out like that. Because this kind of worship can't be manufactured, like we learned last night. Because manufactured worship only leads to emotionalism and lifeless routines. But you know what? 
when your heart is really overflowing with love for Jesus. Things just flow naturally. Another application I see is that when worship happens, it fills the presence of God with an aroma that pleases him. The same way that when Mary poured out that oil, the whole house smelled with the sweetness of that perfume, and there was also that transfer that happened in Mary's life, everything about that home changed because it was smelling like Jesus. Maybe the smell in your home stinks because your marriage is falling apart, because your kids are prodigals. Maybe certain relationships that you have with people in church or at work or at school, it stinks. But when you start bringing Jesus into the story and you start worshiping Jesus in the midst of the pain and the challenges that you're facing at that moment, Jesus is able to take a house and change the smell. He brings in the sweetness of his presence. That's why in the book of Leviticus chapter 2 verse 2, it describes worship as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And that's why it's so beautiful when there's real worship that happens, how it fills the presence of God, how it fills the house of God, the church, with a sweet aroma. And isn't that one of the reasons why you became a member of the church that you belong to? Some of you, I've heard your stories. You grew up in religious backgrounds and your experiences in church was anything but joyful and positive. And then all of a sudden, someone invites you to come to the church that you're at now and you walk in and it's like the moment the door opened, you were confronted with the sweet aroma of Jesus. As people were just loving on you and then during the time of worship, it was so simple, but it was so pure. It wasn't, it didn't have all the, the, the high tech and media and the flash that other mega churches might have, but it was the guy with the acoustic guitar and the cajon and, and the keyboards, but it was simple, but it was sincere. And, and then the pastor just came up and just started sharing from the word and you just walked away like there was nothing flashy about this, but There's just a whole lot of Jesus in this house. That's what attracted you there, was the sweetness of that smell. And now you are part of that smell because of how Jesus transformed your life. And in the same way, the next application, like Mary, when we worship God, we take on that sweet fragrance, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Do you know people like that? I hope you're one of those people. Those people that you have in your life that whenever you're with them, There's just something about them that you walk away just wanting to love Jesus more. I've got a handful of friends like that, and I love spending time with them. It doesn't mean that every time we get together, we're always talking Bible. It doesn't mean that every time we get together, we're always talking the gospel. 
Sometimes we'll get together and talk about sports, or other times we'll get together and we'll talk about our favorite foods, because men like food. And we'll talk about all sorts of stuff, but there is a reality of Jesus in their life because of the worship that is true and sincere in their hearts. And every time I spend time with them, I walk away feeling like I just want to love Jesus more. If you want to be that kind of a person to someone else, it's not about you trying to make yourself that. All you have to do is just start meeting with Jesus on a regular basis at his feet just to love on him and be loved by him. And the more you do that, the more you're going to walk away with his smell, and with that, people around you are going to say, gosh, I want to love Jesus more because of what I see in you. Number six, I see that when we worship God, we give him glory. Mary wiped his feet with her hair. Her hair. In 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen, Paul tells us that the glory of the woman is what? Her hair. Now, in the times of Jesus, a woman would keep her hair bound up, and she would only let down her hair for her husband. In fact, this was one of the things her husband looked forward to on their wedding day. It was a big deal for a girl, especially a single woman, to loose her hair and let it down for any man. It was her glory. And this woman... She loosed her hair and let it down for Jesus. And when she did that, she laid glory at his feet. And this reminds me of the 24 elders in heaven in the book of Revelation. The Bible tells us that they do not cease day and night in worshiping the Lamb, worshiping God who sits on the throne. And every time they fall on their faces, what are they doing? They're casting their crowns at the feet of God. And so like Mary, we need to give God all the glory. It says in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Two more things and we're done. Number seven, I see in this story for application that the object of our worship must be Jesus. In Mark 14, 3, we see that as she anointed the head of Jesus, then in chapter 12, we see that she anointed the feet of Jesus, that as we mentioned earlier, that her worship was completely Jesus. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's good to be reminded of it. But I, self, is not the object of real worship. Too often, we approach worship with the questions, how will it profit me with stuff? How will it promote my status? How will it persuade others of my significance? You know, sometimes a lot of Christians have an identity crisis. You know, one of the most basic philosophical questions is, who am I? And so we always hear about people going away to try to find themselves. 
But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel settles the identity issue. But even in ministry, too often, people try to define themselves by religious things. And worship is one of them. They want to convince the people around them of how spiritual they are by their outward shows of worship, like Ananias and Sapphira. Back in Acts chapter 5, that God exposed their hypocrisy and they fell down dead. But listen, in Christ, you're already complete in Jesus. We were reminded of that today when the Father said of Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And being in Christ Jesus means that declaration also applies to you and me. But once we get that, that's when we move away from making self the object of worship. And making Jesus the object of worship. Sometimes it comes in real subtle ways. Worship was great today. Worship was awesome today. Why? Because so-and-so was leading worship. And they were singing all my favorite songs. And I really like his style. Worship was really bad today. Why? Because so-and-so was leading worship. And -and so-and-so wasn't singing any of the songs I like. And I really don't like his style. And we gauge worship that way, right? Worship is good, worship is bad, depending upon how it made you feel. But whoever said you were the object of worship? Jesus is the object of worship. He needs to always be the object of our worship, not just when we get together in church to sing songs, but as you go for a walk as you go grab a cup of coffee, as you go spend time with friends. In every instance of life, we want Jesus to be the main thing. And again, this doesn't mean that every conversation has to be about theology and church stuff. But you know, when Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, I love telling our Bible college students down in Southern California because we are blessed to live in the land of a place called In-N-Out Burgers. And I encourage our people, you glorify God when you eat that hamburger. You glorify God when you're downing that Coke and fries and you say, oh, this tastes so good. God, I'm so thankful you created me with taste buds. He didn't have to. He could have just said, look, you need food for fuel, so everything in the world is going to be bland. Just make sure you fuel up. But he created us with the ability to enjoy the flavors and tastes of food. Why? So as we're eating it, we can be thanking him for it, and we give him glory. It should permeate throughout our entire life. Because when God is not the object of worship, then something else has to be. And it's generally me, myself, and I, the trinity of stupidity. (laughs) And so in our worship, when we're singing songs to Jesus about how great he is and how much we love him, we're just lying. Isn't that what A.W. Tozer said? That Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them? 
We want our love for Jesus to be sincere, but that means that we've got to give up in trying to find our identity in form and activities and always being preoccupied with what other people think about us and just get to the place where we get like this woman Mary. Because what she was doing, it wasn't really a popular thing that she was doing because later we see that all the apostles, they were upset with her actions. But as far as she was concerned, even though others were sneering at her, stumbled because of her, as far as she was concerned, there was only one other person in that room, and that was Jesus. And that's all that mattered, that Jesus was happy with her. You see, her identity issue, issues were settled. It's whatever Jesus thought about her. That is where she was satisfied. And then finally, what I love about this story is the application here is that God remembers our worship. He remembers our worship. In Mark 14, 9, again, Jesus said, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Notice what it was that she did that is noteworthy and worth remembering in Jesus' mind. If if this story would have said that she was an amazing preacher, and she'll be remembered forever for that, that would exclude a bunch of us, right? We think, oh, gosh, well, good for Mary, but I, I'm definitely not in that category. Or if it would have said that Mary performed miracles, that would exclude a whole bunch of us. We say, well, good for Mary, but... I'm definitely not in that category. I, I, I guess I'll never be in that group of people that are going to be remembered forever in the mind of God. But God takes something like worship and says, worship is the big deal. When you worship me, I'll remember that, and I'll remember you for doing that forever. And we read the story, and you know what's so great? We all read it and we say, Mary, I can do that. She worshiped Jesus. I can do that. There is no one here who needs to walk away saying, oh, Mary, good for you, but I'll never be in that crowd. Every single one of us can say like Mary, I can do what Mary did. Which all puts us in the category that every single one of us can do things and be those people that are remembered forever. Because that's what God said in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Concerning every one of those people. They were unnamed people. They were just called God's people. For every one of God's people who just bragged about him, God said, I wrote everything they said about me in a book of remembrance. He's got a book. Isn't that wild to think about? He has a book, and every time we brag about Jesus, that conversation goes in his book, and that book is going to last forever. And when I get to heaven, I can't wait for story time. When God opens up the book, and he said, hey, everybody, listen to this. April 16th, 2016. I use this Asian guy named John. 
I did the craziest thing. I took this guy up to Canada. And I put him in front of a bunch of people after lunch. After lunch. And, 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 and these people that were there on the Sunshine Coast, they loved me so much. They not only tolerated this Asian guy, but they received the word and they loved on me. Hey, everybody, it's in my book. And tomorrow, as he turns the pages and he says, hey, everybody, story time. April 17th, 2016, let me tell you what happened at Christ the King Community Church. Let me tell you about what happened at Calvary Chapel, Sunshine Coast. Every single one of us qualifies for that. And how amazing that our God loves it. Loves it. When we just come as we are and we just say, Jesus all this and everything attached to it, it's yours. And you know why Mary's heart was overflowing with love for Jesus like that? It was her response to what Jesus has done for her. Just like we learned today, this story in Mark, or excuse me, John chapter 12, it follows John chapter 11. What happened in John 11? Jesus raised her brother from the dead. She saw Jesus be the hero in an impossible situation. And she was more convinced than ever before that this hero, this champion of mine, is worthy of my worship. And so for Martha, when she prepared dinner for Jesus and the disciples, I bet you it was the best tasting meal. And when Lazarus was there reclining next to Jesus, I bet you he must have just been as close as he could pressing into Jesus. And when Mary saw the hero of her life show up, she said, I'm not just going to give 10%, 50%, or 75%. I'm going to give it all because he's my hero. He's my champion. And he loves me. And I love him. And you know what? This is your Jesus. This is your Jesus. And so we love him, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for bringing us back to this story. And Lord, for reminding us again of how precious this moment was. Not only for Mary, but more importantly for Jesus. And Lord, it's a constant reminder that every time we give you our hearts and we just tell you that we love you with a sincere, true heart, that you receive it with such joy And Lord, we just love the thought that you are a joyful God. And Lord, that your smile is shining on us right now. That your love for us is incorruptible and relentless and enduring. And so, Lord, 
I pray that you'll just help us every day to see how you are actively in our life and working in our life, that we would live life with eyes wide open in wonder and amazement in good times and in bad, so that whether it's during a friendly visit or at a funeral or at a dinner, that like Mary of Bethany, we would find ourselves at your feet, loving on you, and amazed by the fact that it means so much to you that you write about it in a book and you're going to keep it forever. And so, Lord, help us to just fill up the pages of your book with tons of moments where we just love on you. And we thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.